and welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Monday, February 5th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story entitled, Finance Reports Show Mixed Results for Area Candidates. In most races, incumbents' fundraising outpaces their expected challengers. It's written by Benjamin Fisher. Campaign finance reports for the final quarter of 2023 revealed fundraising developments in what are projected to be competitive races for congressional districts in the tri-state area and the first receipts for some new candidates. Overall, the quarter's totals for the period from October 1st to December 31st, 2023, showed continued trends from the preceding quarter for most candidates, except for Wisconsin's third congressional district where fundraising was down for all candidates. In Wisconsin, incumbent U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat from Wisconsin, received $3 million in the quarter. Of that, 11% came from political action committees, the rest of which came from individual donors. Baldwin's campaign spent $1.83 million in the quarter, ending with $8 million cash on hand. Of Baldwin's challengers, Libertarian Philip Anderson's campaign received $5,298, but $3,478 of that was from the candidate. His campaign spent $7,385, ending with $3,840 cash on hand. Republican Stacy Klein received $2,459, spent $2,032, ending with $427. In what is projected to be a tight race in 2024, incumbent first-term U.S. Representative Derek Van Orden's campaign received $582,254 in the quarter, of which 12% was from PACs. The campaign spent $400,256, ending with $1.62 million. Van Orden's fundraising was down from $864,476 in the past, in the quarter from July 1st to September 30th. Democrat candidates running in their primary to unseat Van Orden in the 3rd Congressional District raised a collective $410,453 in the quarter. Returning candidate Rebecca Cook raised the most, receiving $329,974 in the quarter, spending $139,753 and ending with $496,592. Former La Crosse County Supervisor Tara Johnson's campaign received $80,749 in the quarter, spent $82,801 and ended with $110,658. But Johnson dropped out of the race last month. Cook's total was also down from $400,070 in the quarter prior. Analyses by several political scientists watching the race have proposed that lower numbers in last quarter's reports could be due to donors' uncertainty over the impacts of the Wisconsin Supreme Court's potential decision to redraw congressional district lines as they are having state legislative districts redrawn. In Wisconsin's second congressional district, incumbent Democrat U.S. Representative Mark Pokin's re-election campaign received $103,107, spent $80,516, and ended with $770,797. His return Republican challenger from 2022, Charity Berry, picked up her fundraising, receiving $36,874 in the quarter, up from $1,634 in the quarter prior. 
Barry's campaign spent $12,035 and ended with $25,137. Republican candidate Eric Olson, also a return challenger, received $15,255, spent $15,150, and ended with $3,580. In Iowa, incumbent U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson, a Republican from Iowa, received $558,234, of which 30% was from PACs for her re-election bid in Iowa's 2nd Congressional District. Her campaign spent $428,357, ending with $1.44 million. I am humbled by the support our team received last quarter and throughout the year, Hinson said in a release. Iowans are clearly ready to fire Joe Biden and keep this seat red so that we can grow our House majority and get our country back on track. Last quarter was the first reported for Henson's 2024 Democrat challenger, marketing professional Sarah Corkery, who announced her candidacy on October the 18th. Her campaign received $50,643 in the quarter, of which none was from PACs, spent $14,641 and ended with $36,002. First District incumbent Republican U.S. Representative Marinette Miller-Meeks received $475,223 in the quarter, of which 35% was from PACs. Her campaign spent $274,732 and ended with $1.37 million. Miller Meeks' return challenger from 2022, Democrat Christina Bohannon, received $652,231 in the quarter, of which 7.35% was from PACs, spent $164,060, and ended with $1.12 million. We brought in a record-breaking haul that shows we have the energy and momentum to flip this seat in November, Bohannon said in a release. People understand that as their representative, I won't forget where I'm from or who I answer to. This is the second consecutive quarter in which Bohannon outraised Miller Meeks in what national Democrats have made a top priority target for flipping. In Illinois, incumbent Republican U.S. Representative Darren LaHood's re-election campaign for Illinois' 16th Congressional District received $364,592 in the quarter, spent $233,391, and ended with $4.9 million. LaHood has no challenger yet for 2024 in what is widely considered a safe Republican district, largely due to being drawn that way by the Illinois legislature's Democrat-controlled state legislature. Next is an article entitled, Galena Flower Shop Opens to Celebrate Life's Special Moments. Shop also offers local delivery services and will create customized floral arrangements for special events such as weddings, graduations, and funerals. It's written by Grace Neeland of the Telegraph Herald. Dateline Galena, Illinois. A new floral shop has opened on Galena's Main Street. Willow on Main opened this weekend at 309 North Main Street. The store offers a variety of fresh flowers, gifts, and related items. The shop is a sister store to Cuba City, Wisconsin Greenhouse and is owned by the same couple, Christina and Bill Taylor. We're really excited to bring this sort of service to the Galena market, Christina Taylor said. Flowers are such a great gift, and it's a special way to show that you're thinking about someone. The couple has been looking for a Galena location for several years, she said, hoping to tap into the city's booming tourist market while also serving local customers. 
The Main Street location became available late last year, and Taylor said it instantly was clear the space was a good fit. It's right there on Main Street, but it still has parking for our delivery vehicles, she explained. It was just the perfect location. The shop opens Saturday and already is busy preparing for the impending Valentine's Day holiday. The store will act as a sister location to Cuba City Greenhouse, which would continue to operate in southwest Wisconsin. The couple plans to host a variety of community workshops at Willow-on-Main, Taylor added, around various floral themes. In addition to in-store shopping, the shop also offers local delivery services and creates floral arrangements for events such as weddings, graduations, and funerals. We work with a wide array of events and services on a weekly basis, Taylor said. We provide flowers for funeral services, weddings, for a new baby or a birthday. It's very rewarding to be involved in celebrating so many of life's special moments. Willow on Main is open Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. and on Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. The store can be reached at area code 815-402-2592 and regular updates are posted on its Facebook page. And in the Love That Lasts column, it's entitled Community, Family, Friendship, Fuel Couples 55-Year Marriage. Tom and Linda Stovall were married January 25, 1969. It's written by Michelle London. The first time Linda Bocock saw her future husband, Tom Stovall, she was on a date with someone else, and it was Tom's Smokey the Bear scouting hat that caught her eye. It was a Boy Scout event, and I saw this guy walking by with this hat on, Linda Stovall, now age 76, said. Who knew later in life that we would meet? Tom and Linda attended rival high schools in their native St. Louis and started dating when they were 17 years old. We had a blind date, Tom, now age 76, said. They were both seniors, and soon after graduation, after just a few dates, Tom went off to college, and Linda started working and attending the local community college. I figured that was it, Linda said. We didn't really stay in touch. But Tom was at Missouri Valley College in Marshall, Missouri, three hours from St. Louis, and he was thinking about Linda. One day, he decided to write her a letter and see if she was interested in reconnecting. Perhaps a long-distance relationship for a while wasn't out of the question. That was funny, Linda said. I still probably have that note somewhere, a big long letter, on toilet paper. It's not that Tom didn't have other writing material available to him. He was at college, after all. I just thought it was funny, he said. Linda did, too, and the pair started dating again. Tom eventually transferred to the University of Missouri at St. Louis. We were in love, and I didn't want to be away from home anymore, he said. I guess that's when we got really serious. Tom proposed in a private moment, which didn't sit well with his mother, Thelma. My mom was so mad, he said, she wanted it to happen in front of everybody. Linda said it was Tom's family that initially attracted her to Tom. She was particularly close to Tom's mother, Thelma. Oh yes, he was cute, she said, and I loved his family, and Tom's mom was a real mother to me. Tom said he fell in love with Linda probably before she fell in love with him. But, you know, she's an attractive gal, he said. I just loved hanging out with her. We could talk, and I liked her sense of humor. While the proposal wasn't a family affair, the wedding on January the 25th, 1969, celebrated with all of their family and friends, was. Because of work and school obligations, they didn't go on a honeymoon until August of that year. I had this super beefed-up car, Tom said. We traded it in for a brand-new Volkswagen minibus and went camping for two weeks down at the Lake of the Ozarks. 
The couple has three children, Matthew, Lisa McMahon, and Mark, and eight grandchildren. Shortly after they were married, Tom, a lifelong scout, applied with the Boy Scouts of America and was hired. He served in a number of executive roles during a 20-year career, which kept the family moving to several places, including Omaha, Nebraska, and Rochester, Minnesota. His duties included camp director, district executive, scout executive, and council CEO. Linda had a home daycare business that she ran for 38 years, and she also worked for six years as a preschool teacher. Eventually, Tom and Linda got tired of moving their family every few years. They came to Dubuque when Tom took a job as director of nonprofit operation New View. He remained with the agency for 20 years, retiring in 2014. Linda retired in 2015. Lisa of Moline, Illinois, remembers a house that was filled with the positive energy of her parents' sense of humor. My dad is especially hilarious, she said. My mom is also very good-humored. There are things I do now that my kids will say, that's just like your dad. Laughter in our house was a very big deal when we were growing up. Lisa recalled a time when, as a petulant young adult, she was complaining to her father about her mother. I was probably mad about something she did, she said I couldn't do, and I asked my dad, why did you marry mom? She's so crazy. And he said, because she's hot. To hear him say that was just so funny. Tom and Linda are both involved with Westminster Presbyterian Church, serving on several church committees. Linda served as president for several years of the Stovall Family Association, which organizes reunions and helps members research their family histories. She is currently a member of the board at Dubuque Rescue Mission. The couple also teaches a class through AARP on how to avoid fraud schemes. And Tom is the president of PIN, People in Need, a nonprofit that works with people temporarily in need of assistance to help pay for things like rent, utilities, and other basic needs. I guess community service is our hobby, Tom said. We just really love serving the community however we can, and we enjoy doing it together. The couple has found time to travel as well. They've taken driving trips along the Blue Ridge Highway and through New England and took a trip to Tokyo for son Matthew's wedding. Lisa said her parents haven't slowed down much since retirement. When they retired, they didn't retire, she said. They were just on to new things. They're busy people. Even health challenges haven't slowed down the Stovalls. Tom has been receiving treatment at the University of Iowa Hospitals for cancer, and Linda underwent knee replacement surgery a few years ago. I wasn't happy Linda needed help, but I was happy that I could be there to help her the way that she has helped me, Tom said. The secret to their long marriage, Tom and Linda said, has been that they enjoy being together and doing things together. We have passions for certain, certain things, and we go gung-ho, Linda said. Being involved together and doing things together is just what we love to do. Lisa said she considers herself lucky to have Tom and Linda for parents. They are the epitome of what you hope you'll find in your own marriage, she said. They are devoted to their family and to each other. They're each other's best friend. Now on the Dubuque and Tri-State page, Galena begins search for Poet Laureate. Once appointed, the city would be the smallest in the United States to have such a position. This is written by Michelle London of the uh, Telegraph Herald, Dateline, Galena, Illinois. The city of Galena is looking for its inaugural Poet Laureate. Once someone is appointed to the post, Galena will become the smallest city in the United States with a Poet Laureate. 
Currently, Mount Vernon, Iowa, which is also on the hunt to fill its post, holds that record. The Poet Laureate will serve a two-year term, Larissa Distler, Adult Services Librarian at Galena Public Library said. They'll work with the library, the city, the Galena Center for the Arts, and the school district to create programs to get the community involved. Their job will be to get out there and will include performances and encouraging people to engage with poetry. Distler got the idea for a City of Galena Poet Laureate when she met Angela Trudel Vasquez, the Poet Laureate for the City of Madison, Wisconsin. I talked to Angela about what her job was and what she does, Distler said, and it really intrigued me and made me think how it could be used as a tool for community engagement in Galena. The U.S. Poet Laureate was established in the 1930s, and famous poets who served include some very familiar names, Robert Frost, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Robert Penn Warren among them. Galesburg native Carl Sandburg served as Illinois' Poet Laureate at one time, as did Brooks, who grew up on Chicago's South Side. The establishment of a Poet Laureate program in cities is a relatively new idea. Madison was one of the first cities to establish a Poet Laureate program in 1977. Chicago just named its first Poet Laureate in 2023. Cindy Tegdmeyer, a Galena City Council member, is on the committee that will help choose the Poet Laureate and is part of Broad Ideas, an annual community art show. She said bringing poetry to the community on a local level is a great idea. I lived in Chicago for 20 plus years and they have poetry slams and open mic nights, she said. I'm part of a broad ideas and we always have a spoken word aspect. When people are going a step beyond just reading, that's when it starts to sink in and they feel the message. The committee will choose the poet laureate the committee that will that will choose a poet laureate is a mixture of community members and leaders, including Distler and Tegtmeyer, an additional city council member and representatives from the school board, library, and Galena Center for the Arts round out the selection committee. We're going to review the applications and narrow it down to three finalists who will go through an interview process, Distler said. Whoever it is has to be willing to get out there and work with people of all ages. We want someone who is willing to work with everyone, from kindergartners to adults. Requirements for Galena's Poet Laureate include being a full-time Galena resident and at least 25 years of age. The individual will serve a two-year term and receive a $500 per year honorarium. The Poet Laureate will essentially represent the culture and heritage of the city through the art of poetry, Distler said. They'll foster an appreciation of poetry, including how interesting and fun it can be. Tegtmeyer said she is looking forward to seeing how the city's first Poet Laureate interacts with the community. I look at the Poet Laureate as being more forward-thinking in an artful manner, she said. Redefining poetry and expanding what art is in Galena is what it's all about. Our next article is entitled Super Bowl Sunday, Bowl Included, and super is spelled S-O-U-P-E-R. Convivium Urban Farmstead's annual fundraising event attracts about 150 people. This is written by Eric Hogstrom of the Telegraph Herald. Beth Pittman has made coming to a food-related fundraiser in Dubuque a part of her annual calendar and is starting to build a fine collection of ceramic bowls as a result. This is the fourth year we've been coming, Pittman said Sunday between spoonfuls of soup. 
Pittman of Dubuque was one of about 150 people to attend Convivium Urban Farmstead's annual Super Bowl Sunday event held at the Dubuque organization. The event was split between two meal seatings to accommodate all the participants. It combines a lot of things I like, art, supporting a mission, and good food from the community, Pittman said. Attendees selected a handmade ceramic bowl created and donated by area artists, then filled those bowls with soup donated by local restaurants. Participants got to keep their bowl. A nonprofit organization, Convivium, offers several community outreach programs aimed at food accessibility and education. Our mission as an organization is to improve life through food, said Leslie Shalabi, co-founder of Convivium. One of the that one of the means to do that is to help feed people. This event is a fundraiser and we split the proceeds between us and Riverbend Food Bank. Shalabi, a said statistics indicate as many as 7,100 people are considered food insecure in Dubuque County. Food insecurity means an individual or a family has limited or uncertain access to adequate food, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Pittman attended the Convivium event with her friends Anita Jennings and April Holtran, both of Dubuque. It's a good thing for the community, Jennings said, and I love Convivium. The event began in 2019. Shalabi patterned Convivium's Super Bowl fundraiser on similar food and bowl events that raise awareness of hunger around the country. I just thought it would be clever to call it the Super Bowl and hold it this time of year before the actual Super Bowl, Shalabi said. The bowls for the event came from two sources, students in the ceramics program at Clark University under the direction of Professor Troy Aiken and Makokota, Iowa-based artist Gary Karstens. I needed to find a way to give back to the community, and this is my way to give back, Karstens said. The event serves a couple of purposes. Obviously, I'm getting my stuff out there for people to see and handle, but the greater cause is how it benefits the community and how it benefits the programs here at Convivium. Karstens said it took about two weeks to complete the 50 bowls he contributed to the event. The hardest thing about making ceramics isn't the making part, it's the time in between, he said. Karstens said it took two days to form the bowls. Then it's three or four days of letting them sit and dry, he said. Then I have to fire them, which turns them from clay to ceramic. Then I have to glaze them. It's a marathon. Pittman said the effort was worth it. I'm getting a good collection of bowls, she said. Now here's some short articles under the news in brief heading. First, Multicultural Family Center to host a series of events for Black History Month. A series of free interactive sessions will showcase the achievements, contributions, stories, and knowledge of individuals within the local black community. The Community Black Excellence Inspired People series includes four sessions held this month at the Multicultural Family Center, 1157 Central Avenue. The series is held in conjunction with Black History Month. All events are held from 6 to 8 p.m. and include the following dates and topics. Thursday, February 8th, Black History and Education. February 15th, Black Love and Healthy Relationships. February 19th, Black Arts and Culture. And February 29th, Black Community Leadership. Each event features several local speakers. The sessions are designed for adults older than age 18. Pre-registration is preferred and can be done online at mfcdbq.org. 
and police say arrest made in July high-speed chase in Dubuque. Police said a driver has been arrested for leading an officer on a chase through a portion of Dubuque last summer. Thomas J. Epler, age 38, of 924 Garfield, was arrested at 4.40 p.m. Wednesday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on warrants charging eluding second or subsequent offense, driving while barred, and two counts of probation violation. Court documents state that Dubuque police attempted to stop Epler's vehicle at 11.08 p.m. July 5th in the area of 14th and Jackson Streets for faulty equipment on his vehicle. Epler sped away from the scene, turning east onto 15th Street and failing to stop at a stop sign at 15th and Elm Streets. The vehicle continued on Elm Street before turning east onto Garfield Avenue. The vehicle drove on the left side of the double yellow center line and reached a maximum speed of 55 miles per hour in a posted 25 mile per hour zone on Garfield, documents state. The vehicle drove on Humboldt Street before traveling in the alley between Garfield and Romberg Avenues. The vehicle stopped in the 900 block of Garfield and Epler fled on foot. Documents state that Epler has convictions for eluding in 2018 in Dubuque County and in 2008 in Becker County, Minnesota. And here's the top 10 most read stories of the week. An article about a Dubuque medical provider reducing its staff was the most read story of the past week in the Telegraph Herald. Here is the 10 most read stories on the website from January 29th to Sunday. Dubuque Medical Provider announces staff reduction. More than 50 employees affected by Grand River Medical Staff Reduction. Number three, BizBuzz Salon Boutique opening in Dubuque. Local cosmetologist adds teaching to offerings. Antique store opens in Dyerville. Number four, police say no injuries in fire that slowed Dodge Street traffic. Number five, TH First Citizen Award recipient honored for vision, curiosity, and compassion. Number six, Dubuque landlord sentenced for fraudulent reception of rental assistance funds. Number seven, authorities say human remains discovered near Manchester confirmed to be those of missing man. Number eight, love that lasts, equal partnership key to couple's 59-year marriage. Number nine, authorities say two hurt in wreck involving wrong-way driver near Dyersville. And number ten, police say man carrying drugs arrested after brief pursuit in Dubuque. And the Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff Departments reported Benjamin R. Gerhard, age 39, of 2160 Woodland Drive, number A4, was arrested at 10.41 a.m. Saturday at his residence on charges of domestic assault with injury and interference with official acts with injury. Court documents state that Gerhard injured a Dubuque Police Department officer while being taken into custody. And Matthew T. Milligan age 39, of 3487 Waller Street, was arrested at 1.58 a.m. Saturday in the 1600 block of Main Street on a charge of third-degree criminal mischief. Now it's turn, time to turn to the opinion page, and we'll start with a, a other view entitled Denigration of Nations Media Has Become a Political Mainstay. It's written by Llewellyn King, who is the executive producer and host of White House Chronicles on PBS. He wrote this for InsideSources.com. In the 1990s, someone wrote in the Weekly Standard, it may may well have been Matt Labash, that for conservatives to triumph, they had to attack the messenger rather than the message. His advice was to go after the media, not the news. 
Attacking the messenger was all well and good for the neoconservatives. Still, their less thoughtful successors, MAGA supporters, are killing the messenger. The press, always identified as the liberal media, is now often seen due to re relentless denigration as a force for evil, a malicious contestant on the other side. No matter that there is no liberal media beyond what has been fabricated from pro political ectoplasm, traditionally most proprietors have been conservative and many, but not most, reporters have been liberal. It surprises me to learn that when you work in a large newsroom, you don't know the political opinions of most of your colleagues. I have worked in many newsrooms over the decades and tended to know more about my colleagues' love lives than their voting preferences. This philosophy of kill the messenger might work briefly, but down the road, the problem is no messenger, no news, no facts. The next stop is anarchy and chaos, you might say, politics circa 2024. Add to that social media and its capacity to spread innuendo, half-truth, fabrication, and common ignorance. There is someone who writes to me almost weekly about media's failures, and I assume, ergo, my failure, and he won't be mollified. To him, that irregular army of individuals who make a living reporting are members of a pernicious cult. To him, there is a shadow world of the media. I have stopped remonstr remonstrating with him on that point. On other issues, he is lucid and has views worth knowing on the Middle East and Ukraine. That poses the question, how come he knows about these things? The answer, of course, is that he read about them, saw the news on television, or heard it on radio. Reporters in Gaza and Ukraine risk their lives, and sometimes lose them, to tell the world what is going on in these and other very dangerous places. No one accuses them of being left or right of center. But send the same journalists to cover the White House, and they are assumed to be unreliable propagandists, devoid of judgment, integrity, or common decency, so enslaved to liberalism that they will twist everything to suit a propaganda purpose. That thought is displayed every time Representative Elise Stefanik, a Republican from New York, is interviewed on TV. Stefanik attacks the interviewer and the institution. Her aim is to silence the messenger and leave the impression that she isn't to be trifled with by the media shades of Margaret Thatcher. But I interviewed the Iron Lady, and I can say she answered questions hostile or otherwise. Stefanik's recent grandstanding on TV hid her flip-flop on the events on January the 6th, 2021, and failed to tell us what she would do if she were to win the high office she clearly covets. I have been in the journalist's trade too long to pretend that we are all heroes, but to out, all out to get the truth. But I have observed that journalists tell the story pretty well to the best of their varied abilities. We make mistakes. We live in terror of that. An individual here and there may fabricate, as Boris Johnson, a former British prime minister, did when he was correspondent in Brussels. Some may indeed have political agendas. The reader or listener will soon twig that. The political turmoil we are going through is partly a result of media denigration. People believe what they want to believe. They can seize any spurious supposition and hold it close as a revealed truth. You can, for example, believe that ending natural gas development in the United States will lead to carbon reduction worldwide, or you can believe that the January 6, 2021 insurrection with loss of life and the trashing of the nation's great capital building was an act of free speech. 
One of the more dangerous ideas dancing around is that social media and citizen journalists can replace professional journalists. No, no, a thousand times no. We need the press with the resources to hire excellent journalists to cover local and national news and to send or station staff around the world. Have you seen anyone covering the news from Ukraine to Gaza on social media? There is commentary and more commentary on social media sites, all based on the reporting of those in danger and on the spot. This is a trade of imperfect operators, but an essential one. For better or for worse, we are the messengers. And again, that was written by Llewellyn King, who is the executive producer and host of the White House Chronicles on PBS. Our other opinion piece today is entitled, When Partisan Politics on Capitol Hill Leave Migrants Here in the Cold. It's written by Clarence Page of the Chicago Tribune. As a long-dreaded January chill made life on Chicago's streets unthinkable for waves of migrants bust north from Texas City, state and federal officials engaged in a new round of finger-pointing and buck-passing. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker told reporters last week he was deeply concerned that Chicago officials had no plans to open new shelters. A couple of days later, Mayor Brandon Johnson insisted that he, too, is concerned and shifted blame to the state for an alleged failure to hold up its part of the effort. The mayor urged the state to build more shelter space in other municipalities. Johnson has the city back to saying it will evict migrants from a shelter after they spend 60 days there. What the state committed to doing back in November, that process has not moved as quickly as this 60-day policy will hold, Johnson said. This policy was really attached to a larger operation that included 2,200 beds. That's what the state of Illinois committed to doing. In our nation's capital, the urban political unrest over the migrant influx has found its way into congressional gridlock. Although the border issues have been mostly a Republican issue since Donald Trump launched his first presidential campaign with promises to build a border wall, recent pressures from polar vortexes, Republican governors torturing Democratic cities, and a looming presidential election have pushed border security to the front burner for Democratic congressional leaders, too. Oh, yes, House Republicans raised temperatures on the immigration issue by tying the package to Ukraine funding. Sad to say, that has turned what traditionally was a bipartisan cause into a mainly Democratic priority, largely thanks to Trump. As long as Joe Biden wants to send American aid to Ukraine, it appears Trump is against it. So President Biden and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, both part of the Cold War generation, try to approve aid to Ukraine desperately needs to stave off Vladimir Putin over the bulldog hostility of Trump. Bizarrely, Trump, not even yet the GOP presidential nominee, functions as an opposition force in exile. He is effectively becoming a gatekeeper without any official position of any kind. Behind closed doors, McConnell, has reported by Punchbowl, was moved to reveal that Trump's growing dominance had put Republicans, including him, in a quandary. Throughout his long career, it's usually been McConnell putting adversaries into quandaries. But how to negotiate with a man, Trump, who seemingly has few principles other than winning? As a result, we have seen Republican proponents of a border deal toiling as part of a bipartisan group of senators for months to overhaul our nation's long-broken immigration system in ways Republicans ordinarily would support, while Trump makes that task more difficult. And the reason for Trump's opposition, obviously nakedly political. He wants the issue for his campaign. 
a solution signed by Biden he perceives as threatening to his chances. All the while, people who need to who need help are kept waiting. Back in Chicago, the disagreements continue in the absence of federal action. More than a dozen Chicago aldermen on Thursday called on Johnson to scrap his 60-day shelter limit policy for migrants. How frustrating it must be for Mayor Johnson, Governor Pritzker, and others working in good faith to humanely cope with this crisis that emanates ultimately from Washington and is tied to the ambitions of a man who doesn't even hold office. And again, that was written by Clarence Page of the Chicago Tribune. You're listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments or concerns with this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. There's no obituaries today, so I'll continue with the story from the Tri-State page entitled Free for All, Tri-State Activities That Won't Drain Your Wallet. With Valentine's Day on the horizon, budget-conscious area residents have an array of free activities to enjoy. The Telegraph Herald continues to showcase some of the many free community events in the area over the next week. Enjoy these local offerings without dipping into your bank account. Do you know of upcoming free events that should be featured in this space? Email Executive Editor Amy Gilligan at amy.gilligan, G-I-L-L-I-G-A-N, at thmedia.com. On Monday, February the 5th, uh, from 1 to 3 p.m. in Dyersville, Iowa, Adult Crafter Noon, Kindness Rocks at James Kennedy Public Library, 321st Avenue East. Paint rocks and join the kin- Kindness Rocks project. If you prefer, pick up a take-and-make kit and craft on your own at home. The instructional video for how to do the craft will be posted on both the library's Facebook and YouTube pages on Tuesday, February 6th, and kits will be available while supplies last. At 5 p.m. on Monday, in Dubuque, the Black Panther Party in Des Moines at Clark University's Alumni Lecture Hall. Presented by African American Museum of Iowa, the lecture will explore myths and facts surrounding the Black Power Movement and how groups like the Black Panther Party influenced reforms to education, food access, and life for black Iowans. At 6 p.m. in Asbury, Iowa, Craft Club Valentines at the Asbury branch of Dubuque County Library District for ages 16 and older. As part of a monthly crafting program, attendees will make woven felt valentines. Registration is recommended, but drop-ins are welcome while supplies last. On Tuesday, February the 6th at 9 a.m. in Maquoketa, Coffee and Conservation at Hunts, or excuse me, Hertzville Interpretive Center, 18636 63rd Street. Enjoy coffee, tea, treats, and conversation about conservation. Bruce Fisher of Jackson County Energy District will discuss renewable energy and electric cars. Following the presentation, there will be an opportunity for discussion and social time. From 4 to 5 p.m. in Dubuque, Chopsticks Challenge at Carnegie Stout Public Library, 360 West 11th Street, for ages 10 through 15. It's National Chopsticks Day. Put your skills to the test with chopsticks as you compete in different challenges. Register via the library website. On Wednesday, February the 7th, from 3 to 4.30 p.m. in Platteville, Wisconsin, DIY Squeeze Toys at Platteville Public Library, 225 West Main Street, for ages 7 to 11. Make your own adorable stress relief squeeze toy. 
5.30 p.m. in Dubuque, it's the Pokemon Club at Carnegie Stout Public Library, 360 West 11th Street, for ages 6 through 12. Hang out with other trainers and read, train, learn, create, and play all things Pokemon. Registration required via the library website. At 6 p.m. in Piasta, it's the Craft Club Valentines at the Piasta branch of Dubuque County District uh, Library District for ages 16 and older. As part of a monthly crafting program, attendees will make woven felt valentines. Registration is recommended, but drop-ins are welcome while supplies last. 6.30 p.m. in Lancaster, Wisconsin, the Attitude of Gratitude by at Shriner Memorial Library, 113 West Elm Street Drive, or no, excuse me, 113 West L Street. Dr. Adam Wacker will suggest ways to feel more gratitude and what benefits gratitude has in our lives. To register, email kholman-steffel, S-T-E-F-F-E-L, at swls.org or call 608-723-7304. At 7 p.m. in Dubuque, Clark lives the story of the 1984 fire. At Clark University's Janssen Music Hall, Professor Emeritus Norm Freund speaks about the fire, which happened May 17, 1984, destroyed four historic buildings and resulted in $15 million worth of damage to Clark's campus. On Thursday, February the 8th, from 4 to 5.30 p.m. In, in Dubuque, build a book, Book Binding 101, at Carnegie Stout Public Library, 360 West 11th Street, for ages 12 to 18. Come learn the basics of bookbinding. Participants will make a small soft cover journal or sketchbook to take home. Registration required via library website. From 6 to 8 p.m. in Dubuque, Community Black Excellence Inspiring People Series, Black History and Education, at Dubuque Multicultural Family Center, 1157 Central Avenue, for ages 18 and older. The series features interactive sessions with accomplished black leaders and role models. This program features Jackie Hunter, James Bush, Tiffany Williams, and Delano Kane Watson. Social time from 6 to 6.30 p.m. with the main event from 6.30 to 7.30 and a question and answer session from 7.30 to 8 p.m. Advanced registration preferred via mfcdbq.org. From 6 to 9 p.m. on Thursday, February the 8th, in Dubuque, screening of Oppenheimer at Carnegie Stout Public Library, 360 West 11th Street. Movie will be shown in the Agler Auditorium on the third floor. Seating is first come, first serve. Directed by Christopher Nolan and starring Cillian Murphy, Oppenheimer is a biographical thriller about American theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the Manhattan Project, which developed the first nuclear weapon. The movie is rated R. From 6 to 7 p.m. in Dubuque, the Dubuque Audubon Society's February program at E.B. Lyons Interpretive Center, 8991 Bellevue Heights Road. Katie Fullen of Iowa Department of Natural Resources will speak about the Iowa Wildlife Action Plan and what is being done to implement it. First approved in 2006, this plan is a 25-year strategy for conservation of all wildlife in Iowa. It is a proactive plan designed to conserve all wildlife in Iowa before they become rare and more costly to protect. Friday, February the 9th at 10 a.m. in Elkader, Iowa, Iowa author 
Jay Goodwin will discuss the history of the state's meat lockers at Osborne Nature Center, 29969 Osborne Road. He will present Rural Iowa Sausage, History and Tradition of Brats on the Back Roads. Goodwin writes on the Iowa Gallivant blog and is a regular contributor for Little Village Magazine, Bread and Butter Magazine, and KXEL Radio. Saturday, February 10th, from 10 to 10.30 a.m. in Dubuque, lollipops and music for our preschoolers concert at Carnegie Stout Public Library. The concert is for preschool children and their families. Children will leave the concert with a greater appreciation of music and a lollipop to enjoy. From 10.30 a.m. to 11.15 a.m. in Dubuque, reading with Rover at Carnegie Stout Public Library. Children in kindergarten through third grade are welcome to read a short book to a dog in the Youth Services Program room. Please do not bring your own pet. Kid-friendly dogs will be on hand. From 1 to 3 p.m. in Asbury, Iowa, caricature sketching class at the Asbury branch of Dubuque County Library District for children in first through fifth grades. Join local artist Isaiah Hessling of Silly Sketch to learn the art of caricature drawing. Learn how to make facial features and expressions that bring your drawings to life. Registration is required. And on Sunday, February the 11th, noon to 1 p.m. in Dubuque, Rockin' Reptiles and Awesome Amphibians at Mines of Spain State Recreation Area's E.B. Lions Interpretive Center for all ages and featuring live animals. Do you know the difference between a reptile and an amphibian? After this program, you will be a herpetologist and explore hands-on the worlds of herps, the collective name for reptiles and amphibians. Learn about some of the different species living at National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium. And one news in brief article, Jackson County seeks public input as as officials update federally mandated disaster mitigation plan. Dateline, Maquoketa, Iowa. Jackson County officials seek public input as they update a mandated plan on dealing with natural disasters. The Jackson County Emergency Management Office is conducting an online public survey as officials update the county's multi-jurisdiction hazard mitigation plan according to a press release. The plan assesses the natural hazards that pose a risk to the county, such as tornadoes, windstorms, ice storms, and flooding, and identifies ways to minimize the damage of future events. The plan must be updated every five years to maintain eligibility for hazard mitigation assistance grants from the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Visit tinyurl.com slash Jackson Mitigation for more information and to access the survey. And Worthington Fire Department to host fundraising breakfast. Dateline Worthington, Iowa. The Worthington Fire Department hosts a drive through fundraising breakfast next month. The event will be held from 7 a.m. to noon, March 3rd, at the fire station, 214 First Avenue West. The cost is $12, and proceeds will support updating fire department and EMS equipment. Now we move on to the sports page, and we'll start with what's on television in the sports world today. In women's college basketball at 5 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Minnesota at Michigan State. At 6 p.m. I'm on ESPN2. It's Louisville at North Carolina State. And at 7 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Illinois at Purdue. In men's college basketball, 6 p.m. on ESPN, it's Miami at Virginia. 
8 p.m. on ESPN. It's Kansas at Kansas State. And at 8 p.m. on ESPN2, it's Southern at Jackson State. Top article on the sports page today is a prep swimming article entitled Dubuque Well Represented at Boys State Swim Meet. It's written by Jim Leitner. The Dubuque schools qualified a total of 30 swimmers for this weekend's Iowa High School Athletic Association state meet in Iowa City. Hempstead, coming off the first district championship in program history, also qualified at least one swimmer in all 11 events for the first time. And an emerging senior program will be represented in seven events. Here's a capsule look at the top seeds and local qualifiers for the meet. The preliminary heats are at 5 p.m., Friday. Finals are at 12.30 p.m. Saturday. They're at the Campus Recreation and Wellness Center at the University of Iowa. The fastest 32 individual swimmers and 24 relay teams from district competition advanced to the state meet. Dubuque swimmers competed at their own district, while other host sites included Ames, Marion, Linmar, Mason City, Johnston, and West Des Moines Valley. In the 200 medley relay, the top seed is Iowa City West. Local qualifiers, senior William uh, Fry, Duncan Freund, and Jarrett Herber and Walter Freund. Uh, Hempstead, Jake Dolphin, Brandon Decker, Mason Lem, and Harry Gilbertson. In the 200 freestyle, the top seed is Jacob Pins of West Des Moines Valley. Local qualifiers, Owen Leitzen from Hempstead, Logan, Logan Westoff of Hempstead, Michael Rett Gilbertson of Hempstead. 200 individual medley, top seed Joe Poliak of Iowa City High. Local qualifiers, Jake Dolphin of Hempstead, Zach Wenger of Hempstead. 50 freestyle, top seed is Finn Martin of Newton. Local qualifiers include Kyle Powers of Hempstead, Brandon Decker of Hempstead, Mason Lem of Hempstead, and Jarrett Herber of Dubuque Sr. 100 Butterfly, top seed Parker Mako or Macho from Linmar. Local qualifiers Zach Hare uh, from Dubuque Sr. or Davenport Sr. I'm not sure which. Uh, excuse me, William Fry from Sr., Logan Westhoff from Hempstead. Mason Lem from Hempstead, and Jared Herber from Senior. In the 100 freestyle, the top seed is Owen Chiles of Pleasant Valley. Local qualifiers include Kyle Powers of Hempstead, Owen Leitzen of Hempstead. 500 freestyle, top seed Will Gorman of Pleasant Valley. Local qualifiers Zach Wenger of Hempstead, Michael Rett Gilbertson of Hempstead, and Dustin Coyle of Hempstead. 200 freestyle relay, top seed Pleasant Valley. Local qualifiers, Hempstead, Kyle Powers, Brandon Decker, Owen Leitzen, and Michael Rett Gilbertson. Senior, Walter Freund, Cole Marshall, Duncan Freund, and Zach Hayer. 100 backstroke, top seed is Owen Chiles of Pleasant Valley. Local qualifiers, William Fry of Senior and Jake Dolphin of Hempstead. 100 backstroke, Top seed is Klein Brock of Waukee. Local qualifiers Zach Hare of Senior, Duncan Freund of Senior, and Brandon Decker of Hempstead. And the 400 freestyle relay, the top seed is Pleasant Valley. 
local qualifiers from Hempstead, Kyle Powers, Michael Brett Gilbertson, Henry Gilbertson, and Owen Leitzen, and from senior Jarrett Herber, Walter Freund, Zach Hare, and William Fry. In college basketball, Iowa State loses controversial game in final seconds. The dateline is Waco, Texas. Jaden Nunn made the go-ahead layup with two seconds remaining, and the 18th-ranked Baylor overcame Coach Scott Drew's first career ejection to beat number 12 Iowa State 70-68 to on Saturday night. The Bears hung on for the victory when Milan Mimsilovic banked a three-pointer by the Cyclones was ruled to be shot after the final buzzer. Nunn finished with 16 points, and Ray J. Dennis had 18 points and seven rebounds for Baylor, which was back at home a week after a triple overtime loss to TCU. Dennis made four three-pointers, as did Jalen Bridges, who scored 14 points. Baylor Athletic Director Mac Roeders was critical of the officiating after the game. He said he planned to contact the Big 12 office. Tonight was an embarrassment for this league, Rhodes said. Scott Drew said we have the best basketball league in the country, and the officiating tonight did not match that. Period. End of story. This league needs to get better when we think about our officiating, and we have some great officials. But this particular crew tonight did not match the level of this game, and that shouldn't happen in this league. Drew, in his 21st season with Baylor, was assessed his second technical foul with 11 and a half minutes left. That technical foul was apparently for apparently leaving the bench area, the same as his technical foul midway through the first half. You pour so much into it, and if you're the reason you lose, there's no worse feeling, Drew said. And I thank God he didn't make me feel that tonight because I know that if we'd have lost and those technicals, those points, they add up. I've got to do better. We'll send in the tape and see if the officials have to do better. Then go from there. Keyshawn Gilbert scored 24 points to lead Iowa State. With the game tied at 68, none was fouled while driving for his go-ahead basket. When he missed the free throw, the clock started and ran out, but officials reviewed it and determined the clock had started early. After 1.2 seconds were put back on the clock, Iowa State inbounded from just beyond midcourt. Taman Lipsy threw the ball into Trey King, who handed it back to Momsilovich. The 6'8 freshman shot from about 35 feet, banked through the rim, but another review showed the ball was still on his fingers when time ran out. I thought we had time, you know. Obviously, it's a bang-bang play, Iowa State coach T.J. Otzelberger said. You don't know if the clock started at the right time or whatever, but it seemed like everything lined up and we were just a tenth of a second or whatever it was late. And Illinois rebounds to beat Nebraska. Marcus Damask and Justin Harmon each made two free throws, and Terrence Shannon, Jr., had a steal in the final 25 seconds of overtime to help number 14 Illinois beat Nebraska 87-84 on Sunday in Champaign, Illinois. The Illini led 72-62 with 3.29 left in regulation, but Nebraska went in front on Rink Mass's jumper with nine seconds left. Damask then split a pair of free throws with three seconds remaining, tying it at 73. Coleman Hawkins led Illinois with 20 points, Damask had 19, and Ty Rogers finished with 8 points and 14 rebounds. Shannon scored 18 points in his fifth game back after sitting out six games because of a university-imposed suspension because of a rape charge in Kansas. Nebraska led Illinois 36-34 at halftime, but the Illini made their first six shots in the second half to take a 47-40 lead. 
The victory vaulted Illinois into a tie for second place in the Big Ten with Wisconsin. The Badgers lost 75-69 Sunday to number 2 Purdue, which leads the conference at 10 wins and 2 losses. In women's college basketball, Clark silences Maryland. Caitlin Clark faked the defender off her feet, took a dribble to her left, and released a three-pointer. It was no surprise when the ball dropped in and Iowa was ahead to stay. Clark had 38 points and 12 assists, and number 3 Iowa withstood a gritty effort by Maryland, outlasting the Terrapins 93-85 on Saturday night. The Terps rallied from an 18-point third-quarter deficit, but Clark and the Hawkeyes had enough answers down the stretch. The Hawkeyes won at Maryland for the first time since December of 1992 when the Terps were in the ACC. Clark now needs 66 points to pass Kelsey Plum atop the NCAA scoring list for women's basketball. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I am your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.